Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and it's time for a classic episode. This episode, originally published on April 16th, 2014, it is titled The Secrets of Tor and the Deep Web. I've covered these topics a few times over the years. This one was a pretty fun discussion. Hope you enjoy. The Mighty Tor is uh, one of the Avengers. Uh, he wields the hammer Mjolnir. And his brother is Loki. She's not even rolling her eyes. She's just staring me down this time. Okay, so seriously, though, what Tor is, it's free software. It's an open network, and it helps you defend against traffic analysis. In other words, people trying to figure out what you are doing and who you're communicating with. Traffic analysis is a form of network surveillance that threatens personal freedom and privacy. Uh, it threatens confidential business activities and relationships, and it threatens state security. Therefore, some folks got together and said, hey, you know what we should do is we should come up with a means to allow people to communicate over the Internet, but do so in a private, anonymous fashion so um, that you could set up these anonymous channels. Perhaps the most popular way to access this is through a customized build of Firefox called the, uh, the Tor Browser Bundle. Right, yeah, because just using Tor on its own is... One thing to do to, to allow you to have a little more of an anonymous presence, but it, it requires more than that, because if you access Tor through some other means, if you don't have, say, Flash disabled in your web browser, then you're still kind of broadcasting where you are, because Flash often involves uh, identification information in order for it to work. So... It, it is open source, so if you feel like getting in there and, and doing your own thing, you're absolutely able to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and and a lot of people do use it in one form or another. At its peak in 2013, more than half a million people were using it every day. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, I think 2013, um, as I recall in that year, there was some news that broke about government agencies. Uh, yeah. Edward Snowden had that leak about the NSA. And um, suddenly people were thinking, you know, I there was a. It, like it doubled. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was one of those things where people began to get very concerned and it's not necessarily that these people are doing anything wrong. In fact, that's not the point at all. The point is that they have an expectation to privacy and being able to hold this kind of anonymous uh, communication with other people. The communication itself isn't necessarily anonymous, but the channels are. Uh, you know, that's just a that's just an expectation we have. It's not that, you know, I'm planning something nefarious. It's just if I want to send a message to Lauren and it's just for Lauren's eyes, I don't think anyone else has the right to look in on that. So, uh, yeah, and in normal Internet traffic, that's absolutely a possibility. Yes, because we've talked a lot about how information travels across the Internet. You know, it all gets divided up into these little packets. Then the packets go across the network and then get put together Willy Wonka style on the other side so that you get whatever it is you were trying to send. Which is unfortunately probably not a delicious chocolate bar. No, or uh, Mike TV either. It's not right. neither of those things. What it might be like if I if I were to send that email to Lauren and it's a sizable email, that email gets divided up into numerous packets. The packets go across the Internet, not necessarily taking the same path. And they eventually reassemble on the other side and then Lauren can read it. But in order for that to happen, these packets have to have little bits of information so the routers know where to send the information on to next. So it, it's kind of like an address on a piece of mail. 
So let's say that you've got a snoop in your neighborhood. And this person is getting into everybody's business. And the way this person does it is they look at all the mail that's going in and out of a person's mailbox. And even if they're not opening that mail and and reading all of it, just just the fact that you're sending it to particular people at particular times can tell that snoop a lot about what's going on. Right. So if you're sending out, uh, you know, envelopes to, say, a medical facility, that could give a lot of information to a snoop if they're seeing that stuff from Various insurance companies is coming into you. That could, you know, I'm, I'm going with a medical thing here, but really this applies to any sort of communication. So, so what, what we're saying is that it's not enough for the content of what you send over the internet, uh, necessarily. I mean, you, a hypothetical you, maybe you're fine. Uh, it's not enough for you to encrypt the content, but the actual transfer of the content in some cases needs to be encrypted. Yeah, exactly. And there are a lot of legitimate cases where oh, yeah. you would want that to happen. I mean, let's talk about journalists, for example. So you might have a journalist who is pursuing some major story. Perhaps they're in unfriendly territory to do so. And they want to be able to contact sources that might be in danger otherwise if they're if if this communication were publicly known or really anything that could endanger the journalist, a source or the story itself. Then you would want to have a way of securely communicating and making sure that no one's really snooping in on you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's a perfectly legitimate source. There are governments that use this kind of thing in order so that they can gather information Mm -hmm. and disseminate information. Uh, you've got companies that use this kind of stuff in order to have secure communications about upcoming products or services that are not part of the public knowledge and don't need to be. Oh, sure. I mean, even if you're just doing R&D about something, uh, you know, like like let's say that you're uh, the example that you used in, in our notes here is Apple. Like if yep. you're if you're creating a new product and you start researching patents online, um, the right person could could find your searches and figure out what you were looking for and. That sucks for you. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you had the next big idea and you were waiting because, you know, like the company of Apple, they get a lot of a, you know, a boost from folks whenever they announce something brand new that surprises everyone, which, of course, is exactly why you have so many news agencies scrutinizing everything Apple does mm-hmm. in order to try and guess what's coming next. So the more you're able to keep that secret, the bigger the impact is when you unveil it. Because the the worst <laughs> the worst feeling is when you tune into an Apple event and it ends up being exactly what you expected it was going to be. <laughs> right. You know, right. Every, everyone still tunes in, but then they're like, oh, but that's exactly what they were talking about last week. I know. And you read what they wrote last week. So stop it. Me? <laughs> sure. And, and lots of other people who could generally be considered to be working for, for non-nefarious purposes, but nonetheless would like a little bit of secrecy. Uh, for example, activists or whistleblowers um, or, you know, Chinese citizens who really just want to use Facebook or read news from other countries. Sure. And we've seen plenty of examples. Also, things like the Arab Spring. Right. You know, p- places in the world where you have people who are trying to enact change in a very harsh environment where 
if their activities were picked up on by official sources, government sources, state-sponsored sources, they could face some serious consequences. Right. And it's not necessarily that, again, like you said, that they're doing anything nefarious. It's just they can't do it at all without fear of some for- form of consequence unless that can remain secure. So you've got to figure out how do we make this secure? Also, we have to figure out how do we frame this in such a way where we also admit some people do use it for nefarious purposes. Oh, sure, of course. I mean, there, there are plenty of people out there who are going to use this kind of anonymous connection in order to conduct illegal or otherwise illicit activities. We've talked about some of them in previous episodes, in fact, and we'll mention some more as we go along. So, again, it's one of those things where you would probably argue that it, it, it's a relatively small percentage of the population using it for these purposes, but they're the ones who get the most press. Uh, and so, therefore, it kind of creates this public perception that people who use Tor are up to something. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, we mentioned the fact that in, in normal Internet communication, the, you know, what what amounts to the uh, the address on the label is perfectly visible because it needs to be so that it can route across. It gets to the place it's going, yeah. In Tor, they had to figure out a way around that so that you could have it be obfuscated so that... If someone were to snoop in on communication, they would not be able to determine what the origin nor destination were. And that is pretty amazing stuff because you got you got to figure out a way of implementing that where it can still work. Like, how do you disguise the address and still hope that it gets to where it's going? (laughs) Because if we did that to the to the U.S. Postal Service, our stuff would never get anywhere. (laughs) And it wouldn't be their fault either, because we just wouldn't be following the rules. Oh, sure. Yeah. If if you don't write your address on something, then yeah. how, how does it get to that place? So here's another funny thing, Lauren. Um, who was it that came up with this whole tour idea? I mean, it must have been like some like hackers, you know, at, at DEF CON convention who all got together and said, we don't want the government looking in on our stuff, right? Uh, yeah, no, it was the government. It was the Wait, U.S. Say what? <laughs> it was it was the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory um, yeah. back in back in 1995, actually, which makes it extra hilarious that that the the NSA has kind of been trying to crack trying the, to crack it. Because, yeah, yeah. You, you've got a government agency doing its best to figure out how to intercept information that goes across a Tor network and another government, U.S. government uh, entity that's responsible in large part for the creation. For its of creation. That. And furthermore, other governmental agencies that are responsible for funding it. As of 2012, one point two four million dollars, half of TOR's revenue uh, came from government grants, including a large part from the Department of Defense. So this is an example of two different parts of the United States government working at odds against each other. Yes. One part saying this is absolutely necessary for us to be able to operate in a secure way. And the other part saying we want to be able to see what's going on here. So. So. So, yeah. But but this all got its start back in 1995 with the U.S. Navy. And um, it was. Part of an onion rooting project. Yes. Routing well, project. Yeah. Routing. Route. Rooting. If you're in England, it's rooting. Here in the U.S., it's usually routing. 
Either way, why would you even call it an onion? It's because it relies upon quote a layered object to direct the construction of an anonymous bi-directional real-time virtual circuit between two communicating parties, an initiator and responder, and that's as clear as day. Yeah, we can just end the podcast now, guys. Don't worry, we're going to explain the whole layered thing a little bit later on. So it, we will we will. Uh, make sure that you understand why an onion. It's actually a pretty clever way to describe what's going on. But the project had specific goals to research and develop and build anonymous communication systems, to analyze other anonymous communications systems, and to create low latency internet based systems that resisted traffic analysis, eavesdropping, and other attacks from outsiders, uh, as in internet routers, or insiders, as in onion routing servers. I have more to say about the secrets of Tor in the deep web. Got a lot of layers to peel off that onion. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. So the ideal was to create some form of distributed system where you could have two parties communicating with one another and no one would be able to know that those two parties were in communication. They they would know that communication is going on because traffic is moving across the network. Mm-hmm. But because of the network's design, they would have no way of knowing what two end parties were actually communicating with one another. Because just as we were saying with that snoop, even if you can't see what the information itself is, just knowing who is talking to whom gives you a lot of info. Uh, right. Because of this, and funnily enough, the Navy actually had to step back from the project in order to make it actually useful uh, because the network needs to be open, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if, if you know, if you can see that everything is coming through right. if, if only, one entity. Yeah, if only the Navy used it, then you would know whenever communication was happening that the Navy was communicating with people. Like, you would, you would have limited the number of people that could possibly be the ones communicating. By making it open and saying, this is a playground where everyone can come in, suddenly you can't tell who's communicating with whom because there's so many there's people. There's too much noise in, yeah. the, in the traffic, right. Um, so the project incorporated is a nonprofit in 2006, and it currently depends a whole lot on crowdsourcing. Um, there are only nine full-time Tor employees as of this podcast, which we are recording on April 10th, 2014, by mm-hmm. the way. Um and uh, the rest of the development is spread across dozens of part-time assistants and hundreds of volunteers. The code is open source, uh, which actually makes it harder to mess with. Um, you know, like if someone, say, say the NSA, tried to create a vulnerability uh, deliberately, then anyone could catch it. Right. Yeah, it's not like it's hidden away behind closed doors and that way it gets overlooked and you suddenly have this backdoor entrance into the Tor network. No, it's it's, it's in, much more likely for someone to catch it if lots of people are looking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got lots of people checking on it all the time. So it's actually more secure by being in plain sight in that way. So here's how it used to work, because, you know, I mentioned that it Tor was um, had an onion in the O, but it doesn't really involve onions anymore. And then we've mentioned onions. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we're we're going to we're going to go back to how it worked. Originally, because the way it works now is not that much different, but it doesn't involve the onion metaphor anymore. So, first of all, to achieve anonymity, the Tor network uses something called privoxy filters, which prevent client information from reaching servers. So, this means that a client, uh, you know, that's that's your computer when you are trying to access, you know, anything. Let's say you're using your your browser 
to access your email because I love that example. It's an easy one. Mm-hmm. So your your computer is the client. It's sending a request to another computer. It's asking for data from this computer that uh, hosts the the email service that you use, and that is called the server. Now, normally the server receives information that can identify the client. So you have some sort of address that identifies this is the machine that's asking for that information. So then the server knows exactly who it's talking to. Well, Privoxy filters prevent that from happening. So it's possible for a client's identity to remain unknown to the server and also to the rest of the network as these requests go across the network. Right. Uh, also, one of the other things it has, and we'll talk more about this in a bit, is uh, the ability to create hidden services. But, um, you know, I'm not going to spoil that because the, the discussion we have later on will really kind of bring that to, to light. And, and it'll make much more sense after we talk about exactly how this communication occurs. Yes. So it's possible to use onion routing software to send information completely anonymously. In other words, you could use it so that you could send an anonymous message to someone else. They would not know the identity of that person. But that's not the purpose of Tor. The purpose like I said before, is to allow anonymous channels of communication. So you and the person with whom you're communicating know each other's identity. But nobody else does. Right. So this allows you to have that honest, open expression of information without fear of someone else snooping in on you Mm -hmm. uh, or any other consequences, apart from whatever consequences come from just that communication between two parties. If you tell someone that they dress like a slob, there's going to be consequences is what I'm saying doesn't have to be that someone's snooping in on you. Good get, point. <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh, so it uses proxy servers, and a proxy server acts as an intermediary between a client and some other server. So you can kind of think of it as this is the go-between. So if I were to send a, uh, a request to uh, get my email, but I wanted to go through a proxy server, I would log into the proxy server the proxy server would then send my request on to the email server. And from the email server's perspective, it looked like the proxy server was the origin of that request. Right. It isn't able to see back to that my extra machine. step to you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's a hop missing there. So that's really important in this. And uh, the communication part is the tricky part, like I said. So you've got this information. It's passing between nodes or little routers within the Tor network, okay? So think of these nodes as rest stops between the, the client, the sender, and the recipient, the server. Uh, right. Each node only knows the identity of uh, the node before it and the node after it. Right. So, uh, and the node before it and after it completely de- is de- dependent upon when you're sending the message because you're, you're going to create new pathways every time you create a connection. So it's not like you have a set path each time. It's like the internet. It's very flexible. So when you send a message and let's say it's going through letters A through G, we're, we're just designating these nodes as A through G and for some reason it's going in A, B, C, D, E, F, G order. So node D only knows about nodes C and E. The information came from C. It knows it has to send the information on to E. It has no awareness of A, B, or, you know, F or G. So that's it. And uh, that means that if you were to intercept information passing between two nodes, you would just know which node it came from and which node it went to. You wouldn't know the actual person who sent it, nor would you know the person to whom it went, ultimately. On top of that, uh, the nodes encrypt the communication as it's passed along. Yes, And this is where you get that layer and layer and layer of encryption. And because there's so many layers of encryption, 
Well, what else has lots of layers? An onion. I was going to think of Game of Thrones. But yes, onion is right. Onion is exactly the thing that they went with because Game of Thrones really wasn't that popular. Also, it's proprietary. I mean, you know. Yeah, they probably would have. George R. R. Martin would have gotten a little upset about that. But yeah, so so onion is, in fact, what they went with because there's so many different layers of encryption. Still a little bit more to talk about with the secrets of Tor and the Deep Web. But before we get to that, let's take another quick break. Okay, so here's my example, and I think it's a doozy of an example because it's completely believable. I've decided to use as an example two of our beloved co-workers here at How Stuff Works. Uh, and when you start thinking to yourself, who would be so paranoid that they would need an incredibly secure communication process? Two names leap to mind from the shadows and then back into the shadows because that's where they belong. That one, would of, be, one of them wearing a gremlin mask. Yeah, and maybe a fedora on top of it. It's not a fedora. I know, Ben. It's a trilby. It's a fedora. I know it's a trilby. I'm going to call it a fedora anyway. So Ben Bolin and Matt Frederick. So stuff they don't want you to know, hosts. Yes. And if you've never, ever listened to that show, go check it or out. Watched, or both. watched. Or it's watched terrific. the show. Yeah, it's great. So, so let's say that Ben wants to contact Matt and he wants the communication to be secure. So he sends it across the Tor network using this freely available software. He's got the Tor bundle installed and he sends the message along. So here's what happens. Ben would contact a proxy server on the Tor network. Now, that proxy server would then determine the route of nodes or the number of hops that it will take to get from the proxy server to Matt's computer. So for argument's sake, let's say, again, that it's just uh, uh, five nodes. So it's A, B, C, D, E. Those are the, those are the nodes that uh, it's going to go through. Now, uh, each hop becomes an encryption layer on this onion. And the core of the onion is Ben's original message to Matt. So that's the very center. Now, Ben's proxy server starts to construct layers of encryption based upon the path that this onion is going to take journeying from the proxy server all the way to Matt's computer. And the innermost layer will be the encryption for Matt's proxy. Yes. So the next layer out would be the node just before it gets to Matt's proxy. Right. The next layer out would be the node before that, and so on and so forth, until you got to the first node that the proxy server sends this onion onto. Now, every time the onion travels to a new node, it decrypts that layer, the corresponding layer. Strips of, it away. Of encryption, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that layer of the onion gets pulled away, and that's how the node knows where to send it on to next. Mm -hmm. So proxy service sends it on to node A. Node A strips away that encryption and sees that it needs to send it on to node B. Node B gets this onion. Now, node B only knows that node A sent the onion, doesn't know where the onion originally came from. Uh -huh. And it uh, decrypts that next layer. Strips it free. Uh, finds the identification of node C and sends it along. Yep. Node C doesn't know about node A, just knows, knows about node B. So, so on and so forth till it gets to Matt. By the time it gets to Matt, all those layers of encryption have been stripped away and Matt can actually read what the message is. Uh, therefore, anyone who's trying to analyze all of this traffic would, would just see a message passing between two seemingly random routers with, with no way of knowing either where that information came from or what the ultimate destination is. Yep. And because you've encrypted it so many times, they probably can't even tell what the information, you know, they can't read it. They don't know where it's going. Yep. They, they're in the dark. So to them, it's just all they know is that traffic is going across this network, but they don't have any way of deriving meaning from that. 
Now, once Matt's proxy receives that onion, a virtual circuit forms along the nodes. Think of it as like a temporary pathway that solidifies between uh, uh, Ben's proxy and Matt's final computer. And it allows for encryption to pass both ways. So you have two different kinds of encryption. You've got one kind whenever Ben sends a message to Matt. And essentially, you have the inverse of that when Matt sends it to Ben. So unless you have the key to that encryption, you can't figure out what's going on either. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty secure. Now, there are some vulnerabilities. Yeah. Yeah, Ma- but- mainly, we're talking about vulnerabilities when you send it from your computer to the proxy server. Mm-hmm. Because- and when that last proxy sends it to the destination computer. Yeah, because th- this is when you don't have the protection of the network itself. It's when it's, it, you can think of it as the information is leaving the network to get to wherever it's going it's or less entering the network. encrypted. Yeah. And again, if you're using a browser that still has certain things enabled like Flash or Java, then uh, you may end up having sending along some information that people could identify you on based on that. But within the network itself, it's incredibly secure. Uh, right. And and so this this circuit that, that you have created will, will last as long as both parties want it to. You can you can send a command to collapse it. Yes. At you, the end of your session. You say destroy and it, it collapses this uh, this virtual circuit. And then if you wanted to create a new one, you could, and it would be a new virtual circuit, mm-hmm. probably taking a totally different pathway through the nodes. And, you know, I, I made the example of A, B, C, D, E, that kind of stuff. But really, you, you know, it could be any order. You know, it, it's, oh, it's, it's bouncing around. And it, and it around. will be any order. Right. That's the, that's one of the whole points, because mm-hmm. if it were the same pathway each time, then you would ultimately be able to determine who sent it and who it went to. Yeah. So it has to be. Uh, you, the, you know, and of course, the more the more routers you have available, the more of these relay nodes you have, the more secure the communication becomes. So that's also really important. Then there's also a concept called loose routing, which adds another layer of security on this. Because, like I said, you know, you, ultimately you have these proxies that know way more information than all the nodes do. They have to in order to be able to make that layer of encryption and have this onion pass from one spot to the next. So one thing you could do with loose routing is that the proxy ends up sending the uh, onion on to the first node, but that's all the proxy knows about. the pro- And then the first node's r- responsibility is to create the rest of that pathway. Oh, okay. So even that first stop d- isn't aware of where, how, what path it's going to take to get to its destination. It just knows this is the first step of that path, but beyond that, I don't know. So it adds another layer of security to it that way. Now, again, if you were able to target that first node, you might be able to figure some stuff out. But really, you just know that it came from a proxy. You wouldn't know who sent the information to the proxy in the first place. But yeah, so we've got these these endpoints that have some vulnerabilities. But other than that, it's it's pretty secure. Uh, I've got a we've got a great little bit about how secure it is in a little in just a little while. But Today, nodes or relays within the system still don't know the origin or ultimate destination of information, and you still create virtual circuits between the initiator and the recipient for encrypted anonymous channels, but there's no more use of this onion uh, metaphor. I mean, it's not 
it's not the same implementation. You get the same result, right? But it's a different implementation that does it. Uh, but it's the it, you know it's following a lot of the same philosophies. And you've got a Tor directory that keeps track of all the available nodes that are on the system at any given moment. Uh, as of January of 2014, there were about 5,000 computers around the world uh, operated by those volunteers that I mentioned serving as potential nodes in this system. Right. And when you send a message to a recipient across the Tor network, your Tor browser or whatever consults this directory, which then uh, it gives it a, a route of nodes, and then you can send the encrypted information across and each node further encrypts the message again and only knows the node immediately before and after, kind of like the, the previous version we just talked about. So it's not that different. It's just this whole layer metaphor is kind of no longer as accurate. But, um, yeah, one thing you got to remember is that because you've got this extra layer of encryption going on and it's purposefully obfuscating the, the origin by hopping around a lot, communication is not as quick. As right. It it's going to take longer necessarily. Yeah. So if you're using Tor in order to send instant messages, your definition of instant may be a little different than what it normally would be. Right. It may just be pretty darn quick, but not as instant as this other method. Yeah. So. Um, uh, furthermore, it is not the most secure thing that you can do. No, uh, I actually read a great article on the best way of using Tor as as part of an approach to securely using the Internet and, and maintaining your anonymity. And I thought about including it in this podcast. I really did, guys. I was going to go all into the tips this guy had, and then I realized that it was so in-depth and there was so much to keep, take into consideration that really we could just do a full podcast just on that. And perhaps in the future we will. If you guys in particular want to know, seriously, I want to be as anonymous and secure <laughs> as possible. Tell me what I need to do. Yeah, we, no. we'll, we'll give you that we should, podcast. We should, we should do that episode. Um, but, we'll tell you right now. It's crazy. Huh. But, but right, because cause even if you're using the most recent version of Tor, I mean, which, as we have just detailed, is an incredibly uh, complex and encrypted process, uh, a determined party could exploit vulnerabilities in Firefox itself, which, which Tor is based in. Um, it could attempt to set up monitoring nodes in the network, um, or it could just methodically work on key decryption in order to spy on your activities. So, yeah, uh, stuff can still happen. Yeah, we'll think about doing a full security episode. I mean, I, I kind of think we'll have to pull Ben in for that one. Oh, that'd be great. We should totally do more yeah. crossovers. We're, we'll, we'll we'll see if we can get Ben to be available for an episode where we really talk about. And, and you know, it's going to sound paranoid and crazy, but the thing is, technology in order for it to work. Uh, needs to have certain information so it can allow you to have this communication. Mm -hmm. But because it needs that certain information, it means that your anonymity is at risk. So you've got to do these kind of crazy things. Also, there are wacky bugs like Heartbleed. Heartbleed, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, I can go ahead and mention this. So Heartbleed, if you listen to our previous episode, we talked all about this vulnerability that was in OpenSSL versions 1.0.1 through 1.0.1F. And uh, and how that ended up meaning that people who use the heartbeat method could get access to encryption keys and thus see everything that's going across the server. So you might wonder, does this work on the Tor network, this crazy relay node network? And the short answer is technically it works, but it doesn't help anybody out because even if you were to see the information moving across a node, it still has multiple layers of encryption 
so it's not as vulnerable. Yeah. yeah I mean, um, although, I mean, Tor, Tor being Tor did say that, you know, if you if you really want to be secure, you might just want to stay off the Internet for a few days. Right. And they did say that they had planned on rolling out patches of the OpenSSL uh, software because the upgrade, the, the newest patch does patch that vulnerability. So uh, they are going to be fixing up those nodes over time anyway. In fact, by the time this podcast comes out, most of them may already be addressed. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they said that um, that worst case scenario, you're probably still pretty OK, you know, in the grand scheme of things. It, it That heart bleed story was a real eye opener. Yeah. Uh, then we have um, the other thing we alluded to earlier. Oh, right. Hidden services. Yeah. Um, that's where that dark net or, or deep web kind of thing comes in. Um, OK, so so Tor also provides a way to to offer up access to a server or to run an entire service without revealing your IP address to your users and from behind a firewall. Um, sites and services set up like this are, are off the beaten Internet path. You can't even find them using Google or other web searches. You have to be using Tor in order to find them. And um, they're, they're all using what's called a dot onion extension because yep. onions. Um, okay, so, so basically how this works, the hidden service has a public to Tor listing. And so when a client wants to access that service, the client sets up a rendezvous node and sends along an access request via the usual Tor encryption routing process um, through a random introduction node that the service has set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the client and service can contact each other through that rendezvous node, again, using the usual Tor circuits. Um, it's, it's like the, the introduction and the rendezvous nodes are translators, right? Mm-hmm. It, it protects the service and the client because neither knows where the other is, that the translators are the recipients for each party's communications. And so this, this deep web or dark net, uh, hosts lots of different stuff. Some things that are definitely in the nefarious category. Like the Silk Road, although Silk Road still has some legit. Sure. 30% of the stuff that was on Silk Road was completely legal. Hey. The other 70% not so much. Yeah, so uh, Silk Road, of course, that got shut down. But it existed on Tor and this kind of uh, hidden web because, you know, you wouldn't want it to be easily accessible. Uh, and then everything would come crashing down. It ultimately came crashing down anyway, but it was hidden better than just right. sitting there and on the web. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the other issues. And, and again, there are other things that are on this deep net, this, this dark net or rather deep web, uh, that again, not nefarious at all. They have very legitimate purposes for existing. It's mm-hmm. completely legal, but it's also designed in such a way as to protect the identity of the people who need to use the services. Mm-hmm. So it, again, uh, just because we have some really high profile examples of naughtiness, doesn't mean that the entire network is naughty. Just like there are other services that people have used where some people are using it in order to get like uh, illegal downloads of whatever content they want. Mm-hmm. But most people aren't. A lot of the focus is on the people who are the pirates and thus the entire service gets painted as. Pirates. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I read a really great quote and I don't have it open right now. And um, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek did mm-hmm. a really great article in January 2014 about about Tor in general and, and the, the kids who are running it and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, the, the example that I think they used was that, you know, you, you don't hear about someone whose stalker couldn't find them. You, you, you hear about the kid who got drugs or right. 
at right, the, the, right. the, the child porn ring or something like right, that. Right, right. So, you know, there are some very, very... <laughs> the Navy wouldn't have been interested in making this uh, in order just to have crime happen. Because <laughs> as low as your opinion of the Navy may be, depending on if you're a Marine or not... It's it's really not in that business. Uh, no, uh, but, but but certainly the fact that this kind of illegal activity can go on means that it attracts attention from, for example, the NSA. Yes. Uh, I love the stories about the NSA and Tor because they're both infuriating and funny at the same time. So infuriating in that uh, the NSA has attempted we know the NSA has attempted to try and crack because of Tor. Edward Snowden, right? Yes. So some of the slides that have come out from Snowden's leak specifically mentioned Tor. Yep, and uh, the, one of the documents within the NSA is titled "Tor Stinks," and the reason they say Tor stinks is because it's so gosh darn hard to figure out what information is within the Tor network. Now they do note that if you are able to target those points where information is coming into the network or coming out of the network, then you are more likely to be able to determine what is going on and to who, who it, is yeah. talking to whom. But if it's within the network itself, there's no report that has leaked so far that has indicated the NSA has been able to crack that. Uh, which has not stopped a whole lot of theorists from saying that they have totally cracked it and that the reports saying that they haven't cracked it are just so that people feel, yeah, that they people will feel uh, a false sense of security using Tor. Here's the thing about conspiracy theories. And again, I wish we had been on here right now. Uh, you know, you can you can have a lack of evidence and that becomes evidence. Or if you have a denial, then that becomes hard evidence. You know? <laughs> so uh, I, I think I really do think because I, I don't think the NSA ever intended for all the information to leak out based upon, I don't know, everything that's happened since then. Uh, so I'm pretty willing to believe that they have not yet cracked how to get look at information in a meaningful way on the Tor network itself. In general, I, I would say that Tor seems, for many purposes, pretty secure. Yep. Now, keep in mind, you still have to uh, practice good Internet security on your own, even if you're using Tor. Right. Uh, and like I said, well, maybe we'll do a full episode on that. If you're interested in that, let us know, because, you know, it may be that our listeners are thinking, wow, they did a Heartbleed episode and a Tor episode. Go back to talking about Nintendo. And that wraps up this classic episode from 2014. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any topics that you think I should tackle for future episodes of Tech Stuff, or maybe there's one that you've listened to and you think that really needs an update. It's seriously overdue. Let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle I use is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 